1: Hey, hey! welcome. Another edition of the Disability Law Show. Good to have you for the hour. Please stick around. Lots to be learned. John Scholes here. I just host, but the brains of the operation doing all the heavy lifting. Martin Willems is there to uh, always answer your questions via phone or email. Maybe your email might appear on a, a future show for sure. But beyond that, reaching out simple. I'll give you the number. You probably know it by now. If you've caught this show before and listened, it's one 5,900 email is help at disabilityrights.ca again help at disabilityrights.ca we're going to get going here in a moment um, the main topic for today including your emails later on will be three things to know about the change of definition phase from one occupation to any occupation in a disability policy if that has caused you some confusion we will clear that up for you for sure but Martin we always start off pal with a, a case of the day or a week that was what's cooking on your end.
2: Yes, thanks, John. So uh, what I'm going to speak about now is something that comes up now and again, and it quite often is a very tricky situation for people to navigate. Um, And it happens specifically in situations where a person starts to get sick, uh, not quite knowing what's going on, and then later on, maybe a few months later or sometimes even a year later, they're given a diagnosis. So in this situation... We have somebody who worked with a company for about 10 years had coverage with the company in other words disability coverage started to have anxiety and depressive issues um, symptoms and a few other symptoms that could or could not be related to the anxiety and depression Um, they filed a claim for disability benefits thought it was all related to workplace issues because it was from their perspective A toxic work environment then went off of work and then resigned from that position the person felt that there was some improvement started to work somewhere else and within the very first few months of working with a new employer the person's symptoms significantly worsened there were new symptoms and went off of work then submitted a claim for long-term disability benefits with the new insurer under the their uh, group policy The insurance company with the new insurer denied or with the new employer denied the claim because it said the condition the disabling condition what was a pre-existing condition within the meaning of the policy now we've had discussions about pre-existing conditions on many occasions so i'll just briefly touch on that because what i'm trying to get out there the message at least is with this particular individual, when he initially went off of work, he thought it was one thing, then started with a new company and filed a claim under that policy. My position looking at this, even though he tried to work somewhere else, is that this claim that he has is the same claim that he had with the first employer and the first insurer. Where there will be no pre-existing condition exclusion because he had been employed for more than a year in this case he had been employed for 10 years and the reason why this was happening is he was under a misapprehension misunderstanding as to what was going on with him and this is understandable because quite often you would have symptoms of a condition the doctors are still trying to figure it out you may think it is related to a mental health disorder but later on it turns out although these symptoms were similar to what you would get with a anxiety or depressive condition these were actually related to a different disorder and in this case it was a neurological disorder that is not going to get better it is just going to worsen so the very difficult thing that this man is now facing is a pre-existing condition denial under the claim he filed with the new employer and the old employer may say, or the the old insurer with the previous uh, employer may say, well, you started to work somewhere else, you no longer have coverage. Now, how to explain this? The first thing to say is, you have a claim under a policy if you are unable to perform the duties of your occupation. This is what happened. Even if you try to return to work somewhere else, Obviously the insurance company would say that they need to be aware of that and they may have to approve it, but people don't know what's happening. So in a situation like this, it is tricky. It's a very difficult thing to navigate, but I have managed and handled cases like this before. There's something called relief against forfeiture as well, which is a principle that the courts apply to forgive people if they don't abide by contractual provisions considering that it would be the right thing to try and help them out. That would be describing it in layman's terms. So if anybody else there is listening, with a similar situation or you know of somebody, a friend, a family member who has a similar situation where they did get sick during the time when they had coverage, then started with a new job and then became sick, and then they are faced with a pre-existing condition exclusion, denial, phone us, So we can at least have a look at the facts that led to you becoming disabled and whether there potentially is a claim that can be pursued with the previous employer. This is not something that comes along that often, but I do see it from time to time. And I can understand why people get so overwhelmed that they don't know how to manage that situation. And they quite often think, well, the insurance company says this is pre-existing, so I have no other opportunity to pursue any claim because they must be right. Sometimes they are right, but quite often they're not. In this case, it may be that it is a pre-existing condition, considering that this started within a less than a year time frame. And if we look at what the pre-existing condition definition is in the policy, because they're all different, this likely is one, but there is a claim potentially to pursue with the first insurance company that denied the claim. So again, if your claim is denied at any juncture, You should phone us, but if there's a complicated situation like this, don't try to navigate this by yourself. Phone us and we can review everything with you. The denial letter, the policy, your specific facts and circumstances, and we can give you an informed opinion as to what your options are, because that's important. You
1: need to know what it is that you could do to deal with the denial. And always reach out. By the way, as uh, Martin said several times during that uh, that opening salvo there, one Use the number. It'll cost you nothing just to pick it up and have a call and uh, just get some basic information off the hop for sure. It could be for you. It could be a family member colleague. Just make the call either way and pass that number number around. As I mentioned, three things to know about the change of definition phase from one own occupation to any occupation in that disability policy. It will be there. Number one is this, Martin. Any occupation does not literally mean any occupation. It must be an occupation available in your province for which you are qualified by means of your transferable skills, uh, training, education, or experience, right? What do you say about that?
2: You know, we speak about this basically every show, but I think it's a good <laughs> idea to have a discussion just on the on the exact topic. Um, basics, a disability policy is a contract. Basically all group disability policies. In other words, something that you have through your employment, it's a benefit that you have. your employer or the union negotiated. A contract a policy with an insurance company basically all of them if they are group policies will have a change of definition what that means is when you submit a claim to the insurance company when you go off work and it's for long term disability benefits there's a defined period of time wherein which you must show that you cannot perform the essential duties of your own occupation For the most part it is two years. There are policies which will provide that it's one year, some may be three years, but the vast majority of them will have it as two years. Then the definition for total disability changes and that is called the change of definition phase. It changes from you having to prove you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation to that of you having to prove now that you cannot perform the duties of any other occupation. And this is really an important discussion because it's not always explained to people as to what that means. If you understand or if you just hear me say own occupation versus any occupation, you will think, well, if there's any job out there, any job at all, then I'm no longer disabled. And that is not how this is assessed. So it has to be something within which you have transferable skills for and how do they assess transferable skills they look at your education your training and your experience some policies may say um, if there is a occupation that you can perform based on your education training experience or something that you are qualified for or may become qualified for which is maybe a little bit of a different analysis to look at but the point is it cannot just be any occupation you must have some skills that you can rely on to perform the duties of that occupation that the insurance company may say you should be able to perform. So do not accept that it is just any occupation. Just And also on this point, just because you may have had some experience doing desk work, maybe you've had a few computer courses. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. Now you've gone out and you've been doing a very labor-intensive job. The insurance company then looks at, oh, let's look at your resume. Let's see what your education is. Let's see where you worked before. Let's see what training courses you attended. And then they may say, OK, we've seen that you've done this 10 years ago, some computer courses. So clearly, you must be able to perform some form of a desk job based on your then education, your training experience. So it may be a very, very artificial way of assessing at their end whether you are capable of performing the duties of another occupation based on your education training experience. Now, there are two others, and I know you'll lead me into the next one, but that one that I just spoke about is very important because you must be able to do it. You must have some skills, and if you don't, they should continue to pay you.
1: Yeah, the next one, as you uh, mentioned, Martin, is all about the money, which we're going to get to after a short break. Number two and number three are coming up, so hang in in the meantime. And you can also write this number down to use anytime as well, one 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca or simply disabilityrights.ca for more information and contact for Martin and his team. As well, short break, coming back with more. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang in there.
0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: All right, welcome back, Disability Law Show. Good to have have you long John Scholes here uh, hosting and of course the brains of the operation Martin Willems courtesy Sanfiru to Mark and LLP you can reach out to Martin anytime it is a uh, free call for sure Uh, just have a chat 1-855-821-5900 help at disability rights.ca before we get into our list of emails here we're uh, going through three things you need to know about the change of definition phase on that disability policy. Number two, again, as I mentioned before, the break, it's where the money is, right? It must be an occupation that pays you what they call a commensurate income to your pre-disability income. Break that down for me, Martin.
2: Okay, so this is another important one to discuss. When we look at whether the person is able to perform the duties of another occupation, this is another important feature that is assessed, and or rather that should be assessed, As to whether the person is no longer disabled and that is you're looking at the other occupation that the insurance company may say you're able to perform that occupation must pay you a certain amount of money and what that means is they often use the word commensurate which is I've always had difficulty with that phrase because commensurate quite often would be similar to but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same so The commensurate wage as it is assessed, there are two things to be said here. You're going to look at the wording of the policy. Remember what I said earlier on, it is a contract. So the contract will define what is total disability with respect to the own occupation and the any occupation phase. So in some policies, the any occupation phase will provide that there is a certain percentage of money that you must be able to earn in order to no longer be considered totally disabled. It may be 75% of your pre-disability income. Some may have 50% of your pre-disability income. If the policy is silent on that, in other words, if there is no percentage given in the definition of the any occupation phase, we default to what is called the common law position and that may be something an income that is similar to your disability benefit itself so if you were earning five thousand dollars before you became disabled and your disability benefit is three thousand dollars it may be under the terms of your policy that when we look at the any occupation phase we're looking at is there a job out there that would pay you the the same amount as your ltd benefit in other words $3,000 $3,000 per month. There's another thing that needs to be said here. Some policies may provide that when we look at the commensurate wage that you must be able to earn under the any occupation phase of your policy, we're looking at an indexed amount. What that means is if you stopped work five years ago, they're not going to look at the percentage of whatever it is that you were making five years ago we're going to be looking at the percentage of what the indexed earnings are in other words every year that has gone by over the past five years your earnings may have increased based on inflation but for inflation purposes so it may have gone up by 500 or 600 dollars within the past five years then we're looking at what is the, the percentage of that amount and again it's not always clear to people when they get denied and insurance companies don't always look at those features of a policy. I'm not saying they always don't. I say sometimes they don't. So it is crucial when there is a denial based on the change of definition that we want to look at those features in the policy. Is there a indexed earnings component? Is there a percentage in the disability definition itself? And as I said before, we obviously want to look at your education training experience as well.
1: We are talking about three things to know when it comes to the change of definition of your policy. Number three, just as important, guys. You must be must be able to perform the essential duties of that occupation within your functional restrictions and limitations. I'm sensing the doctor comes into play here.
2: Oh definitely the doctor comes into play here. You know, ultimately what we're speaking about is disability. So if you have anxiety and depression and you were working a high cognitive demanding job say as an accountant you have to focus do these things but you have anxiety and depression and with that comes lack of focus lack of concentration inability to multitask inability to comprehend things low mood low energy poor motivation I'm speaking about mental health in this case in this context because we see so many mental health cases that are denied now Of course, working as an accountant would be an occupation where you really have to focus. But if you were to translate those restrictions and limitations, we also may not want to be working with other people. It would be difficult to think what occupation, even though it may not be as high cognitive demanding, in other words, where you really have to focus all the time, when you have those symptoms, those restrictions and limitations, what other occupation would you be able to perform? Um, Again, people get overwhelmed when it gets denied at this phase. So it's not simply you were doing something that was very labor-intensive, go work in something that is a desk job, for example, because the same argument can be made there. If you've got a bad back because you were working as a landscaper, but you also have an inability to sit for very long, you cannot perform a desk job. So it's not this white and black scenario. There's gray all over the place. So we want to look at what are the functional restrictions and limitations that you have? And how would those mm-hmm. translate into your ability to work in any occupation mm-hmm. for which you've got the transferable skills and that would pay you a certain amount of income? So when these cases get denied at the change of definition, as many of them do, it is crucial to have a discussion with the doctor as well. Yeah. your treating doctor or your treating physicians. Maybe you've got a specialist on board. Maybe you've got a psychologist on board. Have a discussion with them to review the denial letter with you and find out whether they continue to support that you are disabled from performing the duties of another occupation. I tell you, for the vast majority of cases that I have seen that were denied, the doctors were up in arms. The treating physicians, I should say not just the the treating Mm GP, the specialists as well, as to why the claim was denied. Specifically because the doctors would say the person still remains disabled from performing the duties of any other occupation. So when this happens, when this denial comes about, quite often people feel forced that they have to return to some form of occupation. And that is where the problem lies. Because they may have made some gains with respect to improvement, improving from the condition that led them to become disabled. And the stress of the denial, when it happens at this change of definition, where the person sees that they don't have any income any longer they feel right. it's an uphill battle they may be forced to return to some form of of work and so often we see that people have a worsening with respect to their condition the improvement that they have had will be eroded it's gone and they now go downhill again and then it's going to take so much longer to get them back to a position hopefully where they can return to some occupation so quite often these cases are denied very prematurely at a time when it is a very artificial denial. When an insurance company looks at this change of definition, they may retain a vocational counselor to perform something called a transferable skills analysis. And that is where they would look at, oh, you've done all these things in the past. We think you can go do this job. When in the real world, that simply is not a feasible option for the person making the claim. And that's when many get denied. So if your claim is denied, if you know somebody who has had their claim denied, and it is at this change of definition phase, or any other matter for that, for any other reason for that matter, get in touch with us. As I've said before, and I say every time, we will look at the denial letter, the reasons for the denial. We will look at your education training experience, Have a discussion as to what your specific circumstances are, what your doctor's opinion is. And quite often, we will be able, I would say for the vast majority, we will be able to assist with the denial and help you navigate that to the point where we can get you a resolution, which will hopefully help you along.
1: And with that, let's uh, move into our uh, first email of the show. Again, sending one along anytime for air or otherwise, help at disabilityrights.ca. Says, hey, Martin, I have a long COVID. I understand that this is a new condition and a lot is still unknown about it. I got very sick when I first got COVID in 2021. It took me weeks to regain some of my strength as I was so fatigued. I took some time off work and then returned on a gradual basis. I struggled with fatigue, brain fog, poor memory. In June of last year, 2022, I got another viral infection, and that did it. I was bedbound for a month. I now have difficulties with concentration, focus, and have very little energy. This has been very difficult to accept. The insurer did not approve my claim, but recently told me that the expectation is that I should have recovered by now, and my claim is being terminated in June. I've not received and cannot understand how the insurer can make a decision on what should have happened versus what actually is happening. What do you think?
2: You know, this is something that has been building. Um, This is something that we were expecting to happen. When there was discussion about long COVID, we knew that there was gonna be a increase in cases and potentially an increase in denials. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, And this particular circumstance Is what i hear of quite often where there may have been a claim that was approved for a period of time but after say a year the person is still unable to work Uh, i've seen a bunch of denials where where the insurance company may say well the expectation is that you should be better by now or that there is no objective evidence to support that you have not improved or that you yes. are disabled within the means of the policy. In other words, that your condition is not severe enough to prevent you from working. And I believe that there was a study recently, or well, a few months ago about this at least, but studies keep coming out as to what it means with respect to long COVID. It is true. It is a very new condition. It is unknown and there are lots of people who continue to struggle with this and these are the trademark symptoms, the restrictions, the limitations. They struggle with fatigue, brain fog, poor memory, cannot concentrate, significant lack of energy and that impacts basically anybody in a position where they would have to perform the duties of any occupation. So I agree. Why would and why should an insurance company be in a position to say, well, we think this is what should have happened when in reality it just isn't happening. I mean, how does that make any sense? If your condition isn't improving, it's not improving. And there's only limited treatment i mean there's a lot of uh, research being done on this but this is very similar you hear to chronic fatigue and people rest they try to do things Mm -hmm. i mean they try to do things a little bit uh, to the extent that they're uh, doing a little bit more on one day than they were the previous day they may find that they are having a bit of a flare-up and that it takes them days to recover again so this is a very serious issue It is a significant condition which can be very very disabling and as I said we see more and more of these cases um, as time goes by. So my advice here is get in touch with us and we can review your case with you and very likely assist you to try and navigate this way forward. Um, There are lots of cases in this situation with these facts that are denied and I'm concerned that that will just continue specifically because it is such a new condition and we don't know where this is going to go and doctors themselves struggle to treat people and to give them advice as to what they should do to get better.
1: But the crux of the whole thing is you're not able to work and it's you know it's not about the diagnosis or the you know it's about it's about what's happening if you can't work because of long covid that's it and I think the insurance companies see this and they're panicking as well. Really.
2: Definitely. It's always about functional impairment. The diagnosis is a big piece, but that's not the most important thing. The most Mm -hmm. important thing is what is your functional impairment? Can you work or can you not work because of restrictions and limitations?
1: Again, one That is the number to go to anytime. That email address we use every show, you can use that, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for shorter, concise information, memos on LTD, a bunch of different topics, really easy to navigate and use. It's like Lego. Can't, can't mess it up. Called ltdfaq.ca. Again, that's free for you to use anytime as well. Back to your emails in a moment here. We'll take a short break and get to more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on.
0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: And welcome back. Thanks for sticking around through the break. Disability Law Show is what it is. What it is. Martin Willems is your guy to reach out to anytime with concerns, has the answers, has a great team with him as well. Always willing, encouraging you to make that phone call, 1 855 821 5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the address that I'm going to again here, guys. Next email says, uh, Martin, I have uh, a claim with WorkSafe regarding my mental health and bullying and harassment from the owner. My EI sickness ran out in mid December. I've been off since August of 2022. I have requested from my employer information in order to apply to my benefits through work. He will not answer me nor send the required information slash paperwork. I've reached out to the insurer explaining my situation to no success either. Uh, what can I do? How am I to live without income or, or, or of any sort? WorkSafe could be months and uh, what if I'm denied? How about that?
2: This is a real concern and it is a big problem. I understand why the person sending this email is so worked up about it, I would be as well. And this goes into a discussion that we had last week with respect to the interplay between bullying and harassment cases in the workplace with WorkSafe, PC, WorkSafe as well as claims with an insurance company. Um, it's very important to do the right thing here. And clearly this person is trying to do it because I've seen many people submit their cases to WorkSafe and then not submit their claim to the insurance company because they're assuming that WorkSafe is going to continue to pay the benefit and that may happen and when WorkSafe then denies the person because they're not going to pay anymore and the person didn't submit a claim to the group insurance company and maybe some time has gone by the group insurer may say well you're out of time now you should have submitted this claim way back when so we're going to deny it so this person has the right mindset as to how to deal with this. A claim has been submitted to WorkSafe, which is a good thing, because it relates, from what I can see, all to bullying and harassment in the workplace. Having said that, I see many of those cases denied in any event, but this is the right avenue to go down. The employer, but from what I understand, this is the owner <laughs> who was doing the harassment and the bullying, doesn't want to provide the forms, and neither the insurance company isn't responding. Um, Tough one, I would suggest be the squeaky wheel with the insurance company, contact them if the case manager, or at least if you're not getting through with respect to a case manager, speak to a manager, speak to a supervisor, send everything in writing as well. Make sure that there is a paper trail, that you try to get these forms. And you can then refer to it later on if the insurance company says well you're out of time you should have applied earlier on you can show these are the dates that I made these phone calls here are my notes with respect to trying to get in touch with somebody and here are the faxes or the emails that I sent off in order to get the forms somebody must respond keep the pressure on them because they have to respond to you and if they don't then you have a claim based on that alone but get that claim in as soon as possible with respect to the employer you may want to reach out to an employment lawyer as well which at our firm we have employment lawyers deal specifically with employment matters because there may be some other claim to pursue here as well considering how things are going here the employer is refusing to cooperate to submit to help this person apply for benefits and that you know there may be some some other issues to deal with like Constructive dismissal. I don't know, but it's important to have the input from an employment lawyer in the situation as well,
1: which the firm can handle. So it's uh, you're in good hands. Regardless, we're reaching out to Martin and his team uh, big time. Next email, guy says this is uh, I'm in impro- I'm approved rather for LTD benefits, but not receiving benefits from my insurer because I'm receiving wage loss benefits from Worksafe. If I retire from my job and collect severance before transitioning to long-term disability benefits, will the insurer retroactive consider the severance that was already received while on WorkSafe as income and then not pay me for several months to account for the severance? The LTD policy says that it considers all income and deducts it from benefit payments, but it does not clarify if it can be uh, done retroactively, considered income already received. What do you think, Martin? Basically, he's looking at money he's already got, or are they gonna nip it back from him, right?
2: Exactly, and again, this goes back to what we, somewhat what we just discussed before, and again last week, the interplay between WorkSafe benefits and long-term disability benefits and other offsets. So, first thing, we have to look at the wording of the policy, because not all policies have the same offsets. It's a safe thing to say, though, and clearly it's happening here, that WorkSafe WorkSafe benefits are being deducted from the long-term disability benefit. So we know that. There's a potential now here for severance as well. If severance covers a certain period of time, say five months, and WorkSafe continues to pay for those five months, the question is, Can, if the insurance company start to pay, need because WorkSafe may end, can the insurance company then retroactively go back and say, well, you received severance for that period of time, even when we were not paying you, we want to have that money or deducted from what we need to do? I would say no, because it is all specific to the timeline. If the severance covers something going back to five months, or at least for a period of five months and a year from now, your claim by WorkSafe is denied then the LTD insurance D start paying you. I don't see how they can go back and try and get money that was paid a year ago. So I wouldn't see that as an issue. It is quite important, though, to look at the wording of the policy again. And it's a good thing that the insurance claim was submitted and that it was approved from the sounds of it, but it's just not being paid because WorkSafe is paying the benefit. Make sure, though, that you do not miss any limitation periods because mm-hmm. – If WorkSafe continues to pay you for a period of time, the insurer is not doing anything. If they were to deny you during a period of time but you're still getting WorkSafe, you want to make sure that you don't miss any timeline. So if they were to deny you, meaning the insurance company, reach out to us so we can at least discuss with you any potential limitation periods.
1: They do the same thing with uh, people who are worried about rental income, so on and so forth, right? You've got to be pretty conscious of all that, don't you?
2: You have to be, and again, is something we, we discussed last week, what are potential offsets? And it right. would be potentially severance, not all of severance, but sometimes. Uh, a rental income shouldn't be unless it's some form of a business. Um, inheritance shouldn't be. It really depends on what the actual income is, but it has to be related to employment for the insurance company to be able to deduct it, I would say.
1: And with that, we'll take a short break. Uh, we want to leave a little extra time on the other side to get to a couple of emails, so we'll do that now. In the meantime, here's that number to write down, one 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Going to take that last break and get back to it here. More of the Disability Law Show is on the way. Hang on.
0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: All right, we're back. This is the Disability Law Show every week here. Thanks for tuning in. If you've sent along an email, you haven't heard it yet. It'll probably be on a future show. If you have heard it, appreciate you sending that along. It's always great for you to add to the content of the show and ask uh, real-time questions for sure. Next one goes like this. Smart says, Hey guys, I'm currently on LTD. Through the government and insurer, I have been on for five years due to two surgeries that caused damage. I want to sell my home and move closer to my mom. I will clear about five hundred k, and I would be putting that into another home, and she would pay the balance. Would that cause a problem with either LTD carrier uh, that would disqualify me or penalize me from my claim? Hmm. There you go.
2: Interesting question. So if the if the question is if I sell my house to move somewhere would that money be somehow be seen as an offset which goes back to the question we just answered Uh, no it wouldn't be because it is you selling your principal property to buy another property doesn't matter if your mother is contributing to that it's not employment income under the terms of the policy it says I want to sell my home and move closer to my mom other issues may arise I suppose Um, If you move away from your treatment providers in other words your treating team your family physician it depends on where you're moving to is it to a different uh, different province you have to remain under the regular care of a physician and you have to continue with an appropriate treatment plan so if there were to be a decision made where you did move make sure that you remain under the care of a physician if you're moving far away make sure that you continue to well that you find a new doctor and a new treatment team and continue to see those doctors on a regular basis if you're still job attached which means that if you are still employed by your employer who has the the the, um, insurance product the the insurance company may look at that as well you're abandoning your position you're just moving you, you never had the intent of moving or um, going back to the employer. Having said that, I would be surprised if that would be the case here because this person has been on claim, at least receiving benefits, now for five years. So other than that, I don't think it should be a concern, but we, it really depends on the factual circumstances here.
1: Again, guys, one 855 the number to reach out. Uh, another email. I think we got time for another one. It says, uh, guys, I suffered a broken spine in 2020 uh, 2021 i own a dentist practice and employ other dentists as well i've been unable to work since my accident but have had some improvement my practice involved general dental surgery I have an own occupation policy which provides for business overhead expenses, long-term disability benefits. As the owner of the business, I also do some administrative work, however, my policy provides for coverage uh, should I be unable to perform the regular duties of my own occupation, which is that of a dentist. The insurer is questioning me on the admin duties I do, less than five hours per week. I get the sense that the insurer is looking at uh, that to say I'm not disabled. I'm wondering whether the insurer can deny me based on that. Seems sneaky. You
2: know, it does seem sneaky, but it's remarkable that this is not the first time that something like this has come across my desk. Um, And you see it a lot when people have their own businesses, right? So your occupation is that of a dentist. That is what you do. You perform dentistry, right? You may make chart notes. You may perform surgeries. Uh, that's what you do, you're a dentist. But as the owner of a company, there may be some admin work that you do as well. I've seen insurance company try to sneak this in there that, well, we see the admin duties as part of your occupation as a dentist. And because you can do it, those admin duties, which is not, not really dentistry at all, um that they deny the claim, or that they may say, "Well, we think that you are partially disabled versus totally disabled because you are still doing some form of work." Now, it it, it is a very nuanced scenario. I think it really depends on the facts. But if they were to be a denial on this basis, it is something that I would fight, fight very aggressively, because the reason why this person has an own occupation policy is to protect them uh. from you know, having a denial based on maybe you can do something else. It is all related to their occupation as a dentist and that applies to anybody else who has an individual policy. I have seen cases similar to this where lawyers, chiropractors, psychologists, other business owners have had similar issues and have faced some scrutiny on what other potential admin duties they are performing. So if there is a denial here, immediately reach out to us because I'm sure that we can assist you with it.
1: I wonder, too, if, you know, being a dentist, I mean, the, the dentist, as you know, they have patients and they, they bill the patients and that's how they receive their income. So if he's just doing the admin and he's not taking patients, I wonder if the commensurate income argument would, would come up to that, too, because, I mean, obviously five hours a week of admin work, I mean, if you if you melted that down to a dollar value it wouldn't be much wouldn't be very much right it,
2: it, it wouldn't be much and you know it, it really as i said it becomes complicated because there's a there's a business that is owned here and mm-hmm. there are other dentists working here as well so they're also contributing to their labor to this business so as the owner of the practice this person is making money off the work of others as well which is fine because it's their business so All it's right. going to be a very fine forensic process to yeah. see w- what it is but you have to look at the bigger picture step back what does this policy provide for it provides for if you are unable to work as a dentist that is the issue so i agree with you the commissioner thing may come into play as well but you really have to focus what does this provide you cannot work as a dentist that is the focus here
1: let's get to uh, one more email here quickly says i have a private policy i work as a chiropractor after years of working in this position, manually adjusting patients, I developed severe pain in my wrists and when I was performing my duties, my policy is an own occupation policy. After after two years of payments, the insurer denied my claim saying that there was no objective evidence to support that I could not perform my duties as a chiropractor. It appears to insured its surveillance of me as it referred to my ability to carry groceries and not showing any pain behavior during my, uh, the observations. I've been upfront about my ability to function outside of my work. My doctors believe I suffered damage to my wrists over the years as a result of the physical exertion required to do my duties as a chiropractor. When I stopped working, my pain improved. I tried to return to work once and my pain returned immediately. Yes, I can function outside of work but cannot do my job. Isn't this what the policy is for?
2: So another, another person who has an individual policy and again has an, what is called an own occupation rider. The focus has to be, can you perform the duties of your own occupation? It is a very, very specific analysis. What does this person do? They manipulate people with their hands. right? That, those are the duties. Mm-hmm. So when they do it, they have pain. When they don't do it, when they're not doing that labor-intensive manual manipulation, they may be able to carry groceries, but that's not the consideration. And again, we've seen this before where they say, well, we see you doing these things. Why can you not work? Well, we know why this person cannot work. They have the support of their doctors. It is when they perform those duties that they have pain. When they're not doing it, they are okay. And that's what the policy provides for. If your claim is denied because the insurance company says you are functional outside of the workplace, for some cases that may be relevant. But in a case like this, where you specifically have to be able to use your hands to do your job, and that's specific to your job, that is what should be considered not whether you're able to carry groceries. That is completely irrelevant. And again, if that, is to, if that is denied, you get in touch with us because we can definitely assist with a claim like this. It is very specific to the own occupation. And that, that extends to many other occupations as well.
1: And that'll just about uh, wrap it up at the time we have here. The show, appreciate all of your input here. And uh, you can always continue to send it along. And maybe on a future show, how about that? Or not, it's up to you. You can outline that in your email. How do you send it along? Help at disabilityrights.ca. And there's also the phone number, which is super convenient and used by many. You're encouraged to do so. At your, at your own leisure, 1-855-821-5900. And again, that website, that offers free and anonymous questions to be asked by you on your phone or your laptop, your desktop tablet. Doesn't matter. Call MyDisabilityQuestions.com. It's free. It's anonymous. The database is searchable. So maybe your question or similar one has been asked previously. You can read that and move on. If not, leave it there and it will get answered. Again, MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Good for another day. Appreciate you tuning in. And we'll catch you next week right here on the Disability Law Show.